Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Podcast is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, people. I hope everybody is having a great week, and I hope everybody is ready for just about the most jam-packed Aaron Torres pod uh, that I could possibly imagine. I am not kidding when I say that I sat around all day Tuesday thinking there are like eight different topics that I could lead this show with. Uh, Do I lead with the college football playoff title game in jeopardy? Ohio State can't get their COVID issues under control. Do I lead with Devontae Smith? Unbelievable story. Wins the Heisman. What about college basketball? NCAA tournament going to Indy. Maybe Urban Meyer to Jacksonville. Maybe a wild slate of college hoops on Tuesday. UConn, 18-point comeback. Kentucky wild win. Uh, So, so much to get into. This is a quick rundown just so you can kind of skim and go to what you want to do. But we will start with college hoops. It just feels like, look, the two big college football stories, I don't know that either uh, is as big as it felt in the moment. From the perspective of, I thought Ohio State might be putting the college football title game in jeopardy, but it appears as though the game will be played. And of course, Devontae Smith, incredible story, as I said, but it was a little bit as expected. So we'll lead with college hoops. We'll start NCAA tournament, going to Indy, one spot. I like it. I think it's the right move. We'll transition to some of Tuesday night's results. UConn, 18-point comeback victory, as I just said. Kentucky Wild win. Uh, And then we will preview very briefly some of the I guess it would be Wednesday night slate since you'll be listening Wednesday afternoon. We'll stop, we'll pause, we'll take a break, transition to college football, where as I said, college football playoff title game in jeopardy doesn't feel like a big deal as of right now. Devontae Smith, we will talk about his Heisman pursuit. And then, little NFL coaching carousel. Urban Meyer, is he headed to Jacksonville? I don't know. Jim Harbaugh, is he trying to sneak out the side door at Michigan? I don't know. Stay tuned. This is the Aaron Torres Pod. And with that said, before we get started, and I, by the way, if you can't tell, I am just geeked up right now. Like, like, like I live for nights like tonight. I also may have drank a little bit of coffee a little bit too late. But with that said, uh, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. You want to do your boy Torres one favor? It's after midnight, East Coast. He's yelling and screaming, keeping his neighbors up. Do him a favor. Uh, Leave a quick five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, And also, if you're not following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Find the YouTube channel if you please. Find the Facebook page as you please. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. And look, I get that I have talked a ton of college football on this show, but I do feel like it is a Tuesday night. We are into January. The college football playoff game, college football title game, excuse me, appears to be scheduled, going off as scheduled. And so because of that, it feels proper that I do start with a little bit of college, college basketball, excuse me. 
So I do want to start with some college basketball, and I do want to start with, frankly, what is a topic that had been floating around for a while. It was something that was kind of public but hadn't really become official, and on Monday it did become official, and that is that the NCAA tournament, the event that we know and love, that big bracket with 68 teams, it is not going to be played in the traditional sense. It's not going to be played in a north, south, east, west kind of uh, mindset or geography or whatever. Instead, it is all going to be centralized in the greater Indianapolis area, not just in Indianapolis, but we're going to have a few games in Bloomington. We're going to have a few games in West Lafayette where Purdue is. Uh, so basically, the whole NCAA tournament uh, is going to be in more or less one place. Everybody, all 68 teams are going to come to one site. Everybody will stay there, and you'll basically stay until you get knocked out of the tournament until we crown one champion on April 5th. Uh, and let me say this, like, first of all, I think it was the right move by the NCAA. And before I get into why, you know, I just want to refresh for people who are new to the show or just found me or lost me and then found me and now you found me again. I think everyone kind of knows where I stand on all this COVID stuff. I think it's serious. I think it's um, concerning. But I also think that we have to get on with our lives and we have to move forward. And I am a person that has fought hard for college sports, fought hard to kind of keep the infrastructure in place. I fought hard for college football back in August and September. I fought hard for college basketball in November and December and January when Coach K was trying to cancel everything. Uh, and I think it's for many, many, many reasons. One, obviously, look, selfishly, I like watching these games, right? All of you do. There was 20 million people that watched the Ohio State-Clemson game the other day. But it's not really about me. It's not really about you. Frankly, it is about those players. And I know some people say, oh, it's just sports. It doesn't matter. I saw that absurd headline that my alma mater, UConn, quote unquote, won the national championship because they were the only ones, quote unquote, brave enough to, to, to not play a season. No, UConn didn't play a season because they would have lost more money playing football than not playing football. They didn't want to do that. And that is why UConn did not play. It was not some sort of bravery thing. Um, so I have never believed that we need to cancel sports. I actually think it's the opposite. I think for the good of the players' mental health, their physical health, um, moving forward as young men, I think it is great that we're playing these games, safely, of course, but playing them, because I do think that it's important, one, first of all, let these kids play, right? You know, the, the basketball players had their entire season ripped away from them uh, two days before the NCAA tournament last year. College football, most of these guys are not going to be playing in the NFL, certainly not for a very long time. And playing college football is about as good as it gets. You add in the mental stuff, you add in the fact that if they weren't playing, they'd be at home with mom and dad, potentially getting them sick, less supervised, no medical. Like, it's the right thing to play sports. But I think two things can be true. Big theme of this week of the show, by the way. Two things can be true. I think it's great that we figured out a way to get games in, but I also do think that the NCAA made the right decision by putting these games all in one place in Indianapolis. And the reason why is very simple. We've all watched the NCAA tournament. We all love the NCAA tournament. Uh, but it doesn't make sense in the current climate that we're living in to have the NCAA tournament the way that we traditionally do where you got four teams fly to Dayton on one day, then they play, they fly somewhere else, then if they win, you know, you got teams flying to potentially three different sites, three different cities in three different weeks. Love the NCAA tournament, but in this climate, it just doesn't make very much sense because even by March, these players aren't going to be vaccinated. They're not going to be uh, out of harm's way with the, this virus, not out of harm's way in terms of liability if something were to happen. And so because of it, the NCAA, I thought, made an actually a very smart decision. And again, I go back to something I said in September where I actually give the powers that be in college basketball some credit here. Yes, the NCAA needs an NCAA tournament uh, to, to, to pay the bills to keep the lights on. Even Coach K has said that we cannot cancel the NCAA tournament two years in a row. But I think from a broader perspective, I also think that the NCAA kind of looked at the mistakes of college football over the last six months and said, we are not going to make the same mistakes. And so if you look at, at what college football did wrong, uh, straight up through, by the way, this college football playoff where the Rose Bowl was slated to be played in Pasadena until about five days before the actual game, I think college basketball looked, saw, observed, and said, you know what? We cannot make the same mistakes that college football did. Let's go ahead. Let's get everything set up in Indianapolis. Let's have, let, 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 you know, let's plug all the holes here. Let's get a plan in place so we're not in scramble mode like football is. So that's the plan. Everything will be played in Indianapolis. 
And let's get into what a little bit of what it'll look like, because I think that's the next question I think most people want to know, right? You guys don't have time to look into every detail. That's my job. That's what I'm here for. It's why I do this show uh, to get behind, the, you know, to get under the dirt under the fingernails. And first of all, I think it's going to be really cool. Uh, NCAA tournament is set for six different sites, including Lucas Oil Stadium, which is where the Indianapolis Colts play, Bankers Life Fieldhouse, where the Indiana Pacers play, but also some venues that we've never seen college basketball NCAA tournaments before. Uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse, where Butler plays, where very famously uh, the movie Hoosiers was shot. Hinkle Fieldhouse will be taking part in this NCAA tournament. Uh, Assembly Hall, where Indiana plays their games. NCAA tournament site this year. You might not be an IU fan, but it's kind of cool that we're going to play NCAA tournament games at Assembly Hall. Same with Mackey Arena. In terms of the setup, by the way, also Lucas Oil Stadium apparently is going to have two courts in it at once. We won't get the cool John Calipari idea of playing two games at one time, which would be awesome. That's for safety. That's for cleanup. That's for this. That's for that. But the broader point is it's just going to be cool and it's going to be different. And in this year, so much is changing. So much is new. I'm just excited that we're getting a, getting a tournament. In terms of everything else that you need to know, first of all, as far as it, it, it appears to be, we're going to stick with a 68-team bracket. One, you don't have to worry about that absurd 346-team bracket that Coach K proposed a few months ago. That was absurd, never happened. That's a good thing. Um, beyond that, there was also talk, I think Joe Lenardi at one point put out the idea of having 80 teams in the NCAA tournament, 8-0. That is not going to happen. It's going to be 68 teams, and it's going to look and feel like a normal NCAA tournament for the most part. Now, what I would say is it appears as though because of travel, because of testing, because of quarantining, it might not be that traditional Thursday through Sunday start with the two playing games before. Uh, it looks like as though... I saw Seth Davis put this out there on Twitter. His thought was that those play-in games might get pushed back to Thursday. Then the tournament starts on Saturday after Selection Sunday. We play Saturday to Tuesday, then pick up the NCAA tournament as it normally is, Thursday to Sunday, Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, and then the Final Four the following Saturday and Monday. But the broader point being that we are, in fact, going to play an NCAA tournament on the timeline that it normally is, even if the games don't go off exactly at the same time that they normally would. Uh, in terms of everything else, I, I think those are that's really it. Um, you know, it's crazy, it's different, but again, it is the right decision. And again, I do give the NCAA credit for making this decision when they did because I think we're getting to be go time. I mean, we're talking about it's already the middle of January right now. And I think when you look at where we are and where we're headed, this was a decision that had to be made. Now, I will say I think there's some other stuff that needs to get discussed. I think we got to figure out if we're even going to do conference tournaments or not. I've seen mixed things about it. My understanding is, frankly, and I hate to say this because I actually like championship week more than the NCAA tournament itself, but I have heard the possibility that we might not do championship week the way that we normally do because conference tournaments probably don't make sense in this current climate, right? I mean, if you think about it at its most basic level, why are you going to have uh, eight or 10 or 12 or 15 teams fly into one place uh, when, first of all, probably six or seven of them can't win it, right? Like, no disrespect in the ACC, but why are you going to have Boston College fly in to play Virginia when Boston College has no chance of winning that game and all they could possibly do is get Virginia sick? Um, so I, I bring all this up to just say I think the idea of conference tournaments, when you add in the fact that, one, all it is is another barrier to getting to the NCAA tournament, two, we are going to kind of know who are the elite teams by that point and certainly who are the best teams in each individual conference. Um, and three, they're not going to make any money, right? Because at the very most, I, I would think that you wouldn't have more than 15, 20% capacity. I just don't see a lot of these uh, conference tournaments getting played. So that's another story for another day. But I did want to open with the NCAA tournament because I do think that they ultimately made the right decision. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. But this is different times. Hopefully, knock on wood, uh, this is the last time that we ever have to do anything like this. Hopefully, by the summer, the vaccine is rolled out. Not trying to get political, I'm just saying. Uh, and we can get back to some semblance of normalcy uh, into baseball season, into next football season. And by the 2022 NCAA tournament, uh, we see more of a traditional deal. But again, this is where we're at, and uh, we will see what happens going forward. But I do think this was the right decision from the NCAA. All right, now that that is out of the way, uh, let's get into what was, it turned into like a really wild slate on Tuesday. And it's crazy, right? Because like the Heisman was the focus of everything on Tuesday. I get it. 
great story. Devontae Smith, I know I've said it 11 times, 10 minutes into the show. Devontae Smith is an incredible story. But if you were sitting in front of the TV, you were uh, exposed. I don't know what the right word is, but you had you were privy to, maybe privy is the right way to put it, some incredible college hoops. And I don't think there was a single better game on Tuesday night. I don't think there might have been a single better game all season long than UConn going to Marquette and finding a way to pull out one of the most surreal, wild, unpredictable, unprecedented wins uh, that, again, we've seen all season long. Huskies were down 18 points in the second half, if you missed it, came all the way back not only to win, but to win 65-54. So let's get into some of the particulars because I think this was, I don't want to overstate it, but I think this was a potentially like a program-changing kind of win. And for the backstory, most of you know, but for those of you who don't, I know I sound like a homer. It's because I probably am a homer. But I did go to UConn. I am a UConn alum. Um, and, like, look, you know, I dealt with a couple bad years here as a UConn alum, as a UConn, I guess you would call it a fan. Uh, I lived through the Kevin Ollie era, and obviously he he won big in 2014 with Jim Calhoun's players. But if you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that dating back to the first season that I did this show, Kevin Ollie was still at UConn. It was the tail end of the Kevin Ollie era. I seem to remember Nick Coffey and I doing some kind of Kevin Ollie trivia. Uh, and it's been a couple years for UConn since they've been relevant. Uh, it was kind of funny. I was watching the game on... I guess it was Tuesday night, and the wife came in. She said, oh, UConn, are they good again yet? What's going on with them? And it's funny because I have been personally a little bit more optimistic about UConn uh, throughout kind of this spring, summer, fall, uh, into the winter as anybody. Uh, but but I, I was also realistic, right? They lost a bunch of key players off last year's team, most notably a senior named Christian Vital. And while I was really excited about them, really excited about the core that they had, a young guy by the name of James Booknight who's getting real NBA draft lottery buzz, I was also realistic. Um, you know, this was a team that, again, went 19-12 and 12 last year. They finished strong, but they're taking a step up in competition. They're leaving the AAC, and they're going to a really good Big East Conference with a coach that is now in his third year, Dan Hurley, who, by the way, I've tried to get into this podcast a million times, neither here nor there, but uh, a, a coach in a program that is heading into a new conference with a bunch of new players, young pieces, whatever. And so realistically, I tried to be honest with myself about what the ceiling of this team was in this season. James Booknight, a really good player. But again, you're entering a completely new league where one, the talent level is increased, but also you have to do 10 new scouting reports for 10 new teams that you've never played before. They've just got to figure out what you do and what you do well, but you have to figure out 10 new teams. And so I think when you factor that in with um, the fact that it's still a relatively young team. Two key players were coming off injuries coming into this season, including Tyler Polly, who we'll get into a minute, in a minute. A bunch of transfers, a bunch of young players. I said, look, I think UConn's a tournament team, but if they could just get back to the tournament and build off this into 2021-2022, that is really what you're hoping for. Instead, it's been the exact opposite. In a year where UConn, again, is very young, in a new conference, and oh, by the way, has been shut down twice for COVID, I actually think it's early, but at 5-1, and one, they have completely exceeded expectations. They beat USC at Mohegan Sun. Uh, they immediately go into pause for the... Um, for the COVID stuff, then they come back, they play Creighton at home, they frankly outplayed Creighton, probably should have won that game, they lose in overtime, but they bounce back with a win over DePaul, and Tuesday marked the first road game that they've played all year, at least the first game they've played out of, out of Connecticut, and I'm just sitting there saying, okay, like, look, you, you lose this game, it's part of being in the Big East, it's part of being in a big boy conference, sometimes you go on the road and you take L's, and it's no big deal. Beyond that, on top of it, uh, not only are you going on the road for the first time with a young team, first road game in the Big East in six or seven years, whenever's the last time they were in the Big East. But on top of that, um, you know, they were going into this game with a real question mark, which is that they really didn't have a second score outside of James Booknight. Even in that win against, or the, the near win, I should say, against Creighton, Booknight went off for 40. Again, an, an incredible individual performance. But outside him, there weren't a lot of guys that were able to contribute. So UConn not only goes on the road, 
but falls down by 18 in the second half and comes back and wins. And what was incredible about this victory, they had an incredible performance by a kid off the bench named Tyler Polly, who is frankly one of the best stories in college basketball, right? I talked about Dante Allen last episode, the fact that he came off the bench for Kentucky as a redshirt freshman coming off an injury, 23 points, 7 for 11 from 3 in the win over Mississippi State. How about Tyler Polly? tore his ACL last year at a time when UConn was just starting to peak in mid to late January. We didn't even know if he would be back. Now, the reports were always that he would be back this season, but you never know. Struggled early, struggled to get off the bench, comes in 23 points off the bench, a bunch of three-pointers. And this was a guy, by the way, that it's probably worth noting, had 19 total points in UConn's first five games of the season. So for him to come off the bench do what he did, go five of eight from three, uh, be the, the the focal point of a rally in a game, by the way, where Booknight actually got hurt. He hurt his elbow, missed a bunch of time in the first half. It was just an incredible win. And I don't want to be Homer alum guy, but I got to say this. I got to give credit to Dan Hurley, credit to this coaching staff, because I do feel like this program is a little bit ahead of schedule. That might sound crazy. That might be preposterous. It's UConn. You should always be relevant. But I'm telling you, man, First of all, the rebuild was real. It took time. Um, But even going into last season or coming out of last season, I should say, um, you know, there was a lot of optimism. But like I said a minute ago, UConn lost a lot of players off last year's team, most notably a four-year senior in Christian Vital. And there were a lot of people that were like, look, get to the Big East, be successful. Let's keep on building on this. But UConn has blown those expectations out of water. They should have beat Creighton. They could have beat Creighton. They dominate DePaul, and then they go to Marquette. But what was most impressive, though, is the way that this team has played. And I talked about it last year when UConn got hot, and I'll talk about it today. They completely out-hustled. They out-wanted. They, 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 I don't even know the words to describe it, but they dominated Marquette on the boards, 42-28, to 28, including 15 offensive rebounds. And this was a game where UConn won this game based on will. Again, when your best player is hurt, he was on the court, but he was barely playing, not as effective, uh, and you go deep into the bench and this kid Tyler Polly comes up big. Just an incredible day, an incredible moment for UConn, and I had a bunch of people tweeting at me, and I think they're right, probably the best win so far of the Hurley era. So I don't really know what to say other than that, except that it was an exciting game, it was an awesome game, down 18 points, you come back, and you want two things, one, You get great contribution from a player who's just a great story. There's nothing else to say when a guy comes back from an ACL tear less than a year later and is contributing big time, but you also get big time contribution from a guy that you need because like I said, um, you know, UConn needs a second scorer and it appears as though they found it in uh, in Tyler Polly. I would add, I had a, a UConn buddy of mine text me during the game This team does not look like James Booknight plus a bunch of role players. This team is a a group of guys that are finding their identity, finding their roles, and I'm telling you, they are in the Big East. I don't know if they're going to win it. Villanova, if they can ever get back on the court, is really good. But I really, really, really like this team, and I really, really like how they are built and how they are progressing uh, throughout this season. Very quickly, (laughs) I do want to hit on the other big story from Tuesday night's college basketball how about those Kentucky Wildcats? A week ago, one and six, the sky is falling, and for a second straight game, they win. And now look, I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat it and pretend like this, oh, they've turned the corner and they're incredible and they're going to win the SEC. No, but in a season where you start one and six, you're looking for any positive signs, and I will give them credit for a couple things. First of all, Most importantly, they had an advantageous early part of the SEC portion of the schedule. They go to Mississippi State on Saturday. They get that win. I talked about it a lot on Monday's show. Dante Allen, he's incredible. We talked about it. And then they play Vanderbilt on Tuesday at home at Rupp Arena. And they went out and they figured out how to get a win. And they did beat Vanderbilt in a game that was probably a little too close for comfort for Kentucky fans. But you know what? A win is a win. You improve to three and six, and all of a sudden, uh, you're starting to get kind of interesting in the SEC, right? Uh, you're two and zero in the SEC. You got a huge game against Florida this weekend. Not saying you're going to win. Florida's a good team. We'll talk about them momentarily. But 
when I look at this whole situation at Kentucky, um, a couple things stand out to me. I think the most notable thing that stands out to me about that Kentucky game on Tuesday night is the, the, the group of guys that Kentucky ended the game with, right? And for people who don't follow Kentucky day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, the big frustration with Kentucky fans is that John Calipari, and I've talked about it on previous shows, but he has given his one-and-done, five-star, superstar guys every benefit of the doubt. I don't come on this show to pick on high school kids. I don't come on this show to pick on college freshmen, but there is a kid named B.J. Boston, five-star McDonald's All-American, who just has not gotten the job done. Calipari keeps putting him out there, keeps putting him out there, keeps putting him out there. Finally, on Saturday, when Calipari gets ejected, his uh, assistant coach, his interim coach, I guess not interim coach, but the guy who was coaching for Calipari, leaves Boston on the bench, puts some of the other guys in, and they find a way to win. So why do I bring that up? It's because the thing that stood out to me more than anything else with this Kentucky victory against Vanderbilt is very simply this. Did you see the lineup that was kind of on the floor at the end of the game? Kentucky has four guys in their program who are not true freshmen right now. Well, five if you include Keon Brooks, but he's hurt. Four guys in their program who are not true freshmen. Three transfers, Olivier Saar from Wake Forest, Jacob Toppin from Rhode Island, Davion Mintz from Creighton, and also Dante Allen, the kid I talked about, who is a redshirt freshman who was part of the program last year. You know who was on the floor at the end of the game? Those four, plus Devin Askew, who has actually been awesome over the last couple weeks. And now I know Olivier Saar fouled out at the end, but it brings up the broader point that John Calipari, for the first time all season in crunch time when he had to win a game, was playing the guys that are actually going to help him win. And I give him credit. I give him credit. And I'll say this for Calipari. Listen, I'm not like a Calipari defender. Oh my God. Like I, I think if you've listened to the show, I've been pretty critical of the guy. But what I would say with Calipari is very simply this. I do think there's a lot of pressure to recruiting these one and done McDonald's All-American guys. When you bring in those guys, you have to play them. Your job is to get them into your program, get them out, get them to the NBA as quick as possible. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying anyone should have priority. What I am telling you is it is the reality of college football in 20 or college basketball in 2021. Trust me. I know people that have coached at Kansas, that have coached at Kentucky, that coach at UCLA, that are coaching the kinds of guys that come into a program and are expected to be in and out in one season. There's a lot of pressure on coaches to play those guys, and not only to play those guys, but to put those guys in position to have success. Because you know what? If they don't have success, guess who you hear from? You hear from parents. You hear from AAU coaches. You hear from high school coaches. You hear from players. In some cases, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm not talking about anybody specific, but some of these guys, there's agents involved. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Some of these guys have agents involved. You hear from the agents. And guess what? You want to get that next group of five-star guys? You got to make this one successful. And so I bring it up because I do give Calipari credit. It is not easy to stick McDonald's All-Americans on the bench late in games. It's not easy to stick guys who are projected as first-round picks on the bench when it matters most. So what does it mean for Kentucky going forward? I don't know. They're 3-6. and six. They're still going to need a heck of a regular season in the SEC to get to the NCAA tournament. And I would add, the SEC's actually been looking awesome over the last two or three weeks when I look at the fact that Alabama is rolling at 3-0. and uh, the fact that I think Arkansas is pretty good. We'll see how they handle themselves at Tennessee on Wednesday. Florida, I give Mike White credit. I've been critical of Mike White. I think he's doing about as well as he can, all things considered. Uh, LSU obviously has talent. Insert your own commentary there. But the SEC is good this year. And so I bring it up because I don't think it's going to be easy for Kentucky to completely turn a corner. But I think Tuesday was a step in the right direction for John Calipari because he finally put his foot in the sand. He finally drew a line in the sand and said, look, I got to play the guys that are going to get me wins. That's exactly what he did Tuesday. It wasn't about how many five stars were on the court. It wasn't about what your accolades were coming into college. It was, can you help me win games right now? And he did it. Kentucky finds a way to win. 
I'll tell you what, man, it doesn't get any easier for Kentucky because that SEC schedule is loaded going forward. They play at Florida this weekend. Then they, they play Alabama at home a week from today in what is going to be a very, very challenging game. A couple other notes from Tuesday into Wednesday. First of all, I just mentioned it, Alabama. Credit Nate Oates. I talked about it on Monday's show, but you know this was a guy. Alabama was struggling. They entered SEC play six and three. Couldn't do anything right. Had some internal issues within the roster, and Nate Oates suspended two starters, two guys that were playing big minutes, James Rojas and John Petty. Well, since then, those well after I should say I take that back. After Nate Oates suspended those guys, they came back, and you know what happened? Alabama's now 3-0 and in the SEC, uh, and you look at, at their wins, they win at um, they win at Tennessee on Saturday, they beat a good old Miss team, they beat the brakes off of them, and they beat a good Florida team. Now all of a sudden you're looking at Alabama, they are 8-3 and overall, 3-0 and in the SEC, the only team in the SEC that's 3-0, and um, and it's just going to be fascinating. I think they're a really good team, I think they're a real dynamic team. It'll be fun to see what happens going forward. North Carolina, by the way, picked up kind of a wild win. North Carolina is kind of like, um, you know, in that Kentucky-Duke category of, like, they haven't really proven that they're all that good. Uh, they're sitting at 7-4 at and four now, but their first two, their last two wins, excuse me, were by a combined three points. They beat Notre Dame by one late. They beat Miami by two on Tuesday night. They're going to be a team worth monitoring because I just don't think they're very good. And then as we look into Wednesday's crystal ball, what you need to know about Wednesday's slate, uh, I'll say this, a couple really, really, really intriguing games. The first one, I mentioned it, Arkansas at Tennessee. Arkansas needs to get right against probably the best team in the SEC in Tennessee, but Arkansas, of course, as I mentioned on the last episode, they did lose a kid named Justin Smith, who is a really, really, really talented player down low. He kind of gave them versatility as kind of a big um, wing slash low post player that could kind of play the five when they needed him, play the four when they needed him, play the three when they needed him. He's out. Arkansas coming off a bad loss to Missouri. They're trying to bounce back against a Tennessee team that is also coming off a loss to Alabama. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting one. Tennessee's a little bit beat up right now. Jaden Springer, their freshman star, is banged up, but he should be playing. But it's just a really fun game. The other one that I would mention, Minnesota at Michigan. Minnesota is all of a sudden like a quietly really, really, really good team. But then I would also flip it and say, you know who's undefeated at the top of the Big Ten standings? There's only one team that's undefeated at the Big Ten, and that's Michigan. Watch out for Michigan freshman Hunter Dickinson, legit seven foot, seven foot one, true low post player. Jawan Howard features him, but that is the games to watch on Wednesday. All right, <laughs> that is all for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Here's the deal. What I'm going to do, come back really quick, talk about Devontae Smith, and then get into the Urban Meyer, Jim Harbaugh stuff. You know, I, I mentioned it. I don't know that there's a ton to talk about with Devontae Smith. I think it's an incredible story. I don't think it's necessarily a surprising story, though. So I'm going to get out of here, going to be finished talking college hoops, but I'm going to come back and we will wrap on college football. Devontae Smith, Urban Meyer, Jim Harbaugh. None of them may be in college football next year, but two out of three are this year. I'll be back momentarily. All right, everybody, uh, I am back, and um, I mean, you could literally make the case that, that Tuesday was like one of the weirdly most important days in college football in like a really, really, really long time, and the first two kind of topics that I, I feel like should be bigger, but I just don't really have a strong opinion on them, right? And like everyone's like, oh, Torres, all you do is spit out hot takes and blah, 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 this and that. And I get it, right? Like, I'm not going to lie. I give a strong opinion from time to time. But I think sometimes there are stories that come out that I just don't have a strong opinion on. So it obviously starts with the college football national championship game. We get this report out. And by the way, I had heard this in the middle of the day that Ohio State is trying to get out of the national championship game 
uh, or they're trying to push it back, excuse me, because they're having COVID issues. Of course, immediately what comes to mind is, is it possible that Justin Fields isn't 100 percent in Ohio State trying to get him healthy? And so that report breaks probably about, what, three in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, Eastern time on, on Tuesday. But, you know, we get it. We get a statement from Greg Byrne, the Alabama athletic director, who says, no, we're planning on playing. I talked to Gene Smith, the Ohio State AD, we're planning on playing. So that's one that it's like, I thought I was going to lead the show with it. And then it was like, oh, they're planning on playing Monday. Don't know what to say. I would also add, by the way, Ryan Fowler, uh, Alabama radio host, will join me on Thursday's episode. We'll preview the game a little bit. And then Monday, of course, we'll have a ton of preview going into that game. Um, But yeah, that felt like it was a huge topic. And then it wasn't. And then, of course, also on Tuesday night, we had the Heisman Trophy presentation. And I got to be honest, like, I, I, I don't have a super strong opinion on Devontae Smith winning the Heisman Trophy. Like, I think it's an incredible story. I'm happy for the kid who, oh, by the way, was ranked the ninth-ranked wide receiver in his own high school class, a kid that was ranked the third-best wide receiver in his Alabama recruiting class behind Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs. But when I look at it in the bigger picture, I don't know that there's really that much to say. Like, if you watched college football this year, he was the best player in college football. He led college football in receptions. He led college football in receiving yards. He led college football in touchdown catches, which, if you weren't paying attention, that's 105 catches in, again, a shortened season, I might add, two less regular season games, 1,600 yards, 20 touchdowns. I don't know what there is to say. I think for a while... The, the, the Heisman race was interesting. Kyle Trask, is he legit? What's the deal? What's the story with that? Then he loses to LSU. Then he loses to Bama. He's kind of out. Mac Jones, he plays really well in the SEC championship game, or excuse me, in the regular season, but he struggles late, struggles in the SEC championship game. Um, I, I don't, you know, you got down to the end of the season, you're like, Devontae Smith's the best player in college football. If anything, I think you could argue that Najee Harris the Alabama running back was maybe the second best player in college football. Loved Trevor Lawrence, but he missed a bunch of games. He missed the biggest game of the regular season. So I don't know that you can give it to Trevor Lawrence. So, you know, I want to do an 8 to 10 to 12 minute segment on Devontae Smith because I think he's a great story. But I'll be honest, I think the Heisman was pretty obvious. You come out of that, that, that SEC championship game, the votes are due. You see how awesome he is. You see the difference that he makes. You see what he did against LSU in a huge uh, made-for-TV game, 231 yards, three touchdowns. And then, like I said, SEC championship game, 184 yards, 12, 12 yards per catch. He was going to win the Heisman. So I'm happy for the kid. I would love to do a 15-minute segment on how incredible it is and how historic it is. But you guys know he's the first wide receiver since Desmond Howard. Kind of a crazy story, but I believe that there have only been three non-quarterbacks who have won the Heisman since like 2004 or something like that. Uh, And all three were from Alabama. Mark Ingram in 2009, uh, Derrick Henry in 2016, and of course, Devontae Smith on Tuesday, 2020-2021 incredible season for Devontae Smith. He is deserving, but I just don't know what else there is to say about that. So with that said, let's switch gears a little bit. All right, let's wrap on some college football coaching carousel stuff, which is really NFL coaching carousel stuff. But how about this for a little bit of a doozy here to start 2021? Very interesting to me that about six or seven years ago, uh, 2014-ish, we thought that Urban Meyer and Jim Harbaugh would be the Bow and Woody of our generation. The 10-year war, they're going to be around. It's going to be split right down the middle. Two of the five best coaches in college football in one conference, in one rivalry. It's going to be great. Except this week, Urban Meyer is long since retired. Jim Harbaugh, I would say, has not lived up uh, to what we thought he was going to do at Michigan. And now both are flirting with NFL head coaching jobs. And so we talked about Harbaugh a ton throughout the season. And I did tell you, by the way, when the season got canceled, when their final three games, Maryland, Ohio State, and Iowa got canceled, I told you, I said, watch out. I think he's going to look for some NFL stuff. So we talked a lot about him throughout the season. So I'll I'll wrap with him very briefly because I don't really, frankly, know how much coaching interest there is from the NFL for Harbaugh right now. But let's start with Urban Meyer because it is fascinating. And I will tell you, sometimes AT's got to take an L. Sometimes you got to take a loss. 
And I was the guy that when Urban Meyer turned down the Texas job, I said, I'll be honest, I really don't think this guy is ever going to coach again. He's 57 years old. He's had health issues. His wife does not seem excited about him returning to the sidelines. Uh, But the more that I kind of looked into it, and the more that I talked to smart people, including, frankly, on this podcast last week, Zach Smith, the more that I realized, you know what? Maybe he will come back, just not in college and instead in the NFL. And obviously that's come come to fruition because there's very clear interest between Urban Meyer and some NFL parties. Um, and, and, and I think it's interesting, first from the college perspective, because uh, something that Zach and I talked about last week and also has been reported, I've talked about it a little bit on this show, I'll be really fascinated to see what the next, say, eight to ten years of college football, specifically with these elite coaches, look like. Because I talked about it on uh, a show last week, but Pete Thamel wrote what was kind of an interesting article, something that I had heard, but it kind of crystallized when he wrote this article. I don't think there's a lot of old school head coaches that are really excited about what the next five to seven years to ten years in college football is going to look like. First of all, you got the name, image, likeness stuff coming down. And you guys know where I stand on this. We won't get into it. Uh, if a player wants to do a, a deal with a car dealership and make a couple grand on the side, I ultimately have no problem with it. I've said it many times. I use my name, image, likeness uh, to sell certain products and, and all that stuff. So I have no problem with it. But I do think that for a lot of head coaches, they're kind of scratching their heads and saying, what is this going to look like? Do I really want to be uh, 10 years from now in a recruiting, forget 10 years, two years from now be in a recruiting meeting where I'm not only sitting there with mom and dad, but I'm sitting there with an agent trying to tell me, hey, oh, by the way, uh, uh, what kind of deals are you going to be able to get us? Well, how much money can we make by coming to campus? Like, in the way Zach put it, I thought was really good, is if you want to deal with agents and you want to deal with, with, with money and those are the only questions that you're going to get asked, you might as well go to the pros where you can at least do it at a higher level, you get paid really well, all that stuff. And so I think when you factor that in with also the transfer stuff where now all of a sudden um, you're going to have to re-recruit your players every year where if you're at an Alabama and you bring in 25 recruits and they don't all play right away, all of a sudden you're worried about, okay, is this guy going to transfer? Is that guy going to transfer? I think a lot of these coaches that have been in the game for a while, not saying it's bad for the student athlete, but I do think these coaches are going to kind of look around and say, wait a second now, if I got to deal with essentially free agency and essentially agents and endorsements, I might as well go do it at the pro level. I didn't get into the college game to deal with all this nonsense. And so I am very curious as to see what the future of college football looks like, not only for Urban Meyer, whether he wants to stay or not, but what does it mean for, say, Dan Mullen, who clearly has some sort of NFL interest. It's very public that he would be interested in coaching in the NFL. Lincoln Riley down the road, Ryan Day down the road, where again, if you got to re-recruit your players every year, which is essentially free agency, why not just go do it in the pros where you can do it at the highest level? But that is the reason, reportedly, that Urban Meyer was not interested in Texas. It wasn't just the health issues. It just wasn't just uh, his wife being uncomfortable with uh, you know him being on the sidelines. It was the idea of, like, I want to see what all this stuff looks like before I commit to rebuilding a program where maybe I'm not just recruiting a kid and, and promising them um, you know, a, a scholarship and this is how we're going to develop you. Now i got to promise them I'm going to get you this amount of money in uh, endorsements and things of that nature. So I'm getting off topic here, but I bring it up because I don't see Urban Meyer in college football over the next four or five years. But the NFL, it's very clear that there's interest, and it's very clear that it may be coming down here in the next few days. Obviously, there's been reports that the Jaguars, really for about two weeks now, there's been reports linking the Jaguars. Their job is officially opened up. Um, And then also, most recently, the L.A. Chargers with Justin Herbert, Joey Bosa, really nice young core, Melvin Ingram, could be interested as well. And so I want to talk about Urban. I want to talk about the possibility of him going to the pros and whether I think it'll work or not. First of all, I, I think the interest is clearly real, right? I think it's clearly real. I think it's really interesting. And I do think Jacksonville makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, when you look at Jacksonville, it is kind of the ideal setup. You got the number one overall pick. You're going to get Trevor Lawrence. You're going to get a a, a, a quarterback that you believe you can build your franchise around for the next 10 to 12 years you got a bunch of draft picks a bunch of young players a bunch of salary cap room and all of a sudden you can really build this thing out the way that you want 
I mentioned it with Urban Meyer a minute ago. He's still 57. He's still got some good years in the tank. And, oh, by the way, it doesn't hurt that it's Florida where he has a history where he and his wife are familiar with the landscape. And, no, I'm not comparing Jacksonville to Gainesville or Miami. I know it's a completely different region. But it is, is still kind of a comfortable place. So I do think that is where the interest comes from. It's kind of a sweet setup, right? And I think I talked about it maybe on the last show or the show before where I said, look, Urban Meyer's not going to just take any NFL job. He's not going to take the Falcons where they're going to have to rebuild and draft a new quarterback here in the next few years. He's not taking the Lions. But Jacksonville makes a lot of sense. L.A. makes a lot of sense with the Chargers. Again, Justin Herbert, um, uh, uh, Joey Bosa, Melvin Ingram, guys like that. And I think the question then becomes, if he does get into the NFL, like, like how will he do? And, and that, to me, is the fascinating thing. I think, obviously, if he takes one of these jobs, it will be something that we talk about much more at length over the course of the next couple weeks. But I do think it's an interesting, compelling conversation. On the one hand, I, I think he's going to be good because I do think that he is a guy that immediately commands respect when he walks in the room. And I do understand it's different dealing with pros versus amateur athletes, young kids. Young kids are wowed by, oh, my God, it's this guy I saw on TV where pros are like, dude, he's just another guy. He's, a, you know, am I getting paid? Is he helping me get paid or not? But I do think on the flip side, you could look at it as those guys did grow, still grow up watching Urban Meyer. And he recruited a lot of them probably. Uh, a lot of them that he didn't recruit wanted to be recruited by him. And I do think there's a presence about him that there isn't with other college coaches coming to the pros. I don't know that anybody was wowed when Matt Rule got the Carolina Panthers job. I don't even know if anyone was wowed when Nick Saban got the Dolphins job a million years ago because Saban had only been a head coach for, you know, whatever, four or five years uh, at LSU before he got that Dolphins job. But I do think there would be a respect factor that would come with Urban Meyer. But I do think, again, part of it would be, um, you know, uh, I don't think it would be as big as college, but I do think it would matter. In terms of how he would do, that to me is the most fascinating thing because I do think he walks in the room, he commands respect. But I also think there is the reality of, wait a second now, this guy has been in college his entire life, and I do think that he, um, it would be an adjustment, right? And I think that's part of the reason that I don't want to say he's dragging this out, but that he is taking his time is to realize how big of an adjustment would it be? How different is it schematically? What kind of staff would I have to put together? Because I'm really plugged in in the college game and I know who to hire for this position coach and who to hire for my wide receivers coach and who to hire to lead my recruiting department. But what about at the pro level? That's a different deal. Who are the talent developers? Who are the young guys? Who are the older guys? What kind of schematics do I need to know? And I think that's the process that he is going through right now. Not to say that he can't learn it, just to say that I think he's in the process of trying to figure out exactly how much he has to learn and how realistic it is. Um, and so to me, I think that's really, frankly, where, uh, where we are and, frankly, where, what is going to decide whether he takes the job or not. Clearly, the money's going to be good. He's supposedly asking for $12 million. We'll see if he gets $12 million. These, these things generally aren't reported. Uh, but I think he wants to figure it out because my understanding, and I'm not saying that I know really well because uh, I don't, but he did work at Fox, and I do know enough people that have been around him. And, like, I, I do think there's genuine interest there. And, you know, I hear all these people say, oh, he loves working in TV. Dude, I watch those broadcasts. I, I think he, I think it's fine. I think it's something to do. I think it's a reason to get on a plane ten times a year. I don't know that he loves broadcasting. Um, and I do think that this kind of time frame makes sense. Like I said, he's 57 years old. I don't think he's in it for 15 years because that's just not who Urban Meyer is. But guess what? Most NFL coaches don't last 15 years. I would love to know, as a matter of fact, how many guys have been in their current job outside of Bill Belichick more than six, seven, eight, nine years, because there's not a lot that immediately come to mind. Um, and so if you're Urban Meyer, if you're 57 years old, if you get to start over with Trevor Lawrence and, oh, by the way, you know you're only going to be there six years, well, crap, man. You go, you bust your butt, you try to build a team around Trevor Lawrence, you try to get to the playoffs by year two or year three, it can be done. Um, and you see if by year four, year five, you're a Super Bowl contender. And if you're not, you gave it a try. You probably just put another 50 to $100 million in the bank for your grandkids, and you say enough is enough, and you leave. But to me, it's fascinating. I can't wait to see how it all plays out. Uh, I didn't think Urban Meyer would, frankly, ever coach again, but it does feel as though there's genuine interest from the NFL, and we'll see what happens going forward. Now, in terms of general interest from the NFL, there's the opposite. Jim Harbaugh. 
And if you listen to this show, that's why you got to listen to the show, people. This is why you guys are smarter as an audience than most other boring, stupid sports talk radio shows. Because I tried to tell you after the Iowa game, everyone's saying, oh, he's going to sign this extension. It's before signing day. He's got to get the extension done. Well, guess what? Never signed the extension. Then, over the weekend, Bruce Feldman reports, oh, by the way, there's an extension on the table. It's been extended to 2026, which Bruce Feldman's a great reporter, not criticizing him at all. He's great at what he does. And it still doesn't get signed. And so, of course, I tweeted out on Monday morning, hmm, he's had this extension on his desk for three weeks. It got sweetened over the weekend, and he still hasn't signed it. I don't know, Jim Harbaugh, you little pesky devil, you. I think you're looking for NFL head coaching jobs. And, of course, nobody really said anything, da-da-da. And then two hours later, of course, everyone starts reporting it, 24-7 sports, this place, that. I said, dude, I tried to tell you this three weeks ago. I said he is going to pursue NFL opportunities. And it makes sense. It is... I, I, like, I don't blame him. I think very clearly this Michigan thing has not worked. I don't think it, anyone can argue that it's going in the right direction to go from 10 wins, 10 wins the first two years to 2-4 and four this year where you beat Minnesota on opening night, then you don't win again except for Rutgers. I don't think anyone can argue this is going in the right direction. And I do think Jim Harbaugh's kind of looking around saying, like, dude, if, if I wait around forever – um, there's a pretty good chance that there are not going to there is not going to be as much interest in me next year as there is right now. And I don't think that he's necessarily wrong. I'm not even sure there's interest in him right now. But I do think at this particular moment, he knows the Michigan thing isn't going to work. Um, and he knows he can also use some BS excuse about, well, you know, this was a weird year and there was COVID and I, of course I stunk. But, you know, two and four, who cares? It was COVID. Well, you come back and you go five and seven next year after you went two and four this year, it's kind of hard to argue that your, your program is still trending in the right direction and that you're going to be okay. And so where I look, when I look at Jim Harbaugh, I, I think he's knocking down doors. I think he's trying to get out of Ann Arbor, but I think he's also kind of got this extension on his desk to kind of keep everything at bay, uh, keep his recruiting class intact, and frankly just kind of say like, look, yeah, no, I had to do my due diligence and see if there was any interest, but... I'm coming back. I'm a Michigan man, blah, blah, blah. All I'm saying is, if that guy wanted to sign the extension, it's been on his desk for three weeks. There was an addition to it. It was sweetened this weekend. And if that guy wanted to be the Michigan coach, without a doubt, indisputably, guess what? The contract would be signed. He is looking for jobs. Again, I don't know how much interest there is. Supposedly, the Jets are interested. Outside of them, I'm not really sure who's all that interested. All right, I think that's it for this uh, episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. A lot of stuff today. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Uh, but before we get out of here, just want to remind everybody, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Ready, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres at Aaron. That's on Twitter. I should mention Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Didn't mention this off the top, but Ryan Fowler, who is a great radio host out of uh, Tuscaloosa, out of Tuscaloosa, he is going to be joining me on Thursday. So we'll talk a little bit about Devontae Smith. We'll talk about this OC coaching search uh, for a new offensive coordinator. And we'll see, like, like, you know, is this college football championship game getting played? So that is all for today's show. Ryan Fowler will join me on Thursday's show. But that's it. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back Thursday morning. Party people. See you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.